Pastor Laren Zoerhoff as he's back with us to preach from God's Word. Oh, and kids are dismissed. Sorry for that. Our thanks to the worship leaders for leading us in our worship and praise of God this morning, and thank you for the invite to uh, share with you from God's Word as we turn this morning to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, the focus will be on verses 8 and 9. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve the Lord by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, it's very difficult for us to impress people with anything these days. I was reminded of that recently after I spent a day on the golf course, and I was very happy about the score that I shot that day. Things seemed to be going well for me, and uh, the ball seemed to be rolling into the hole nicely. And I was feeling good about it until later on that day when I shared that story with someone else, and they looked back at me with that blank stare as if to say, so what else is new? A young man was trying to make an impression on the young lady that he had asked out for a date, and in order to make that good impression, he borrowed his older brother's car. It was a Ford that was a couple of years old, but really a sharp-looking car, and he thought that this would make a good impression. He was optimistic until he drove into the driveway of the young lady's home and noticed in front of the garage a new Cadillac and a new Mercedes-Benz. And all of a sudden he began to realize that making a good impression on her would not be as easy as he thought. And some of you who are older and have experienced some of the hardships and difficulties when you were growing up may experience 
sharing some of those thoughts and feelings with your children or your grandchildren. You relate in detail the hardships and the difficulties and the struggles that you had when you were younger and the sacrifices that you had to make as a result of the difficulties you were experiencing. But somehow or other, as you share those things with your children or grandchildren, they don't seem to make a big impression on them. And you realize that they're looking back at you with that blank stare as if to say, so what else is new? Well, if you're exasperated when you try to make an impression upon other people and they don't always seem to be all that impressed with whatever it is you are talking about, think how things are going to be on the day of judgment when you are standing before Almighty God, the judge of all the earth, and you have to make an impression on him. Well, I don't mean you only, of course. I mean all of us, because all of us are in that situation. All of us are someday going to have to stand before Almighty God on the day of judgment. And if you can't make an impression on God on that great day, you are going to be in serious trouble. So if you are embarrassed sometimes when your friends or your family or your peers don't seem to be all that impressed with whatever it is that you are sharing with them. Think about how you are going to be feeling on that day of judgment when you stand before the judge of all the earth and he doesn't seem to be all that terribly impressed either. Now, maybe you don't think very much about the judgment day and that's understandable because life is busy and we move from one thing to another with a great deal of haste. But it's sometimes good for us to pause and reflect back upon the fact that someday we are going to have to give an account for what we have done on this earth. The Bible tells us that all of us on one day are going to have to stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account of what we have done with our lives. And if other people aren't all that impressed with us, think how difficult and embarrassing and hard it is to discover the fact that Almighty God is not all that terribly impressed either. God can sometimes act that way because the stories that Jesus told illustrate that. There are several stories in the New Testament in which people came before God and Jesus said that God looked back at them and said that he wasn't all that terribly impressed with them. Actually, he didn't use those words. But in the stories that Jesus told, he did say, I never knew you. And that's about the same thing as saying, I'm not impressed. Wouldn't you agree? In any case, it's going to be a very helpless feeling someday when we stand before Almighty God and discover that he is not that terribly impressed with all of the accomplishments, all of the achievements that we have been able to accomplish in the course of our human life. For many of us, it's going to be a surprising thing because we think that somehow or other, God must have noticed us, that God must have taken delight in some of the things that we have been able to accomplish as we lived out our lives here upon this earth. And we have the idea that even though we have those problems and difficulties that 
have come up in our lives, even though we are ashamed of some of the chapters in our lives that aren't what they ought to have been. When God looks at the whole of our life, we have the idea that somehow or other, he's going to think that we're going to be okay. That somehow or other, in spite of the difficulties and the sins and the trials of life, we have done a fairly decent job. And, and when God looks at the total picture, we've got a better than even chance of making it into heaven. But when you back off a little and take a look at human life over the centuries, it's very striking to realize that people have often tried to earn their own way into heaven and failed miserably. One of the beautiful examples of that is found in the scriptures itself. As you read through the Old Testament and you read through all of the laws that were given to the people of God in the Old Testament to guide the children of Israel, there's a very detailed description of what God expects of us. It starts, of course, with the Ten Commandments. We all know them, and they're foundational and fundamental to the kind of life that, calls us, that God calls us to live. But that's not all you find as you read through the Old Testament. The people of Israel were called to live, all sorts, live up to all sorts of rules and regulations that govern their lives. For example... Many rules and regulations were set forth as to what was appropriate conduct for them on the Sabbath day, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And as you read through the Old Testament, there are also laws that were laid out about how they should farm, how they should take care of the sick, what kind of food they should eat and what kind of food they should abstain from eating. All of that was spelled out in the law for the people of Israel to take advantage of and to put into practice so that they could live their life in a way that conformed to the will of God. And these laws recorded for us in the Old Testament scriptures were expanded by the religious leaders of that day. In addition to those rules and regulations that you find in the Old Testament scriptures, there were other books that were written by people who prided themselves in keeping the law of God to the utmost detail. The Pharisees were noted for their determination to live a life that was pleasing and acceptable to God, and so they expanded upon the rules and regulations that they found in the scriptures and made them even more detailed and even more explicit. And among the Jewish people, a sect like the Pharisees became champions in performing the law right down to the very last detail. They were determined to live their life in a way that was pleasing and acceptable to God. Moving forward into history, we see that same thing happening in the course of, uh, of the various centuries since that time. Martin Luther, for example, was the leader of the Protestant Reformation. And he was another person who tried to make an impression on God by his life, by his good works, by the way he lived out his life. And that's why at the age of 21, Martin Luther decided to enter a monastery. He did that because he wanted to devote his life to living a life that would bring praise and glory to God. He wanted to live a genuinely human life. He wanted to isolate himself from all of the sins and temptations that were present in the culture of that day 
so that he could use his ability to the utmost extent in order to devote his life to the service of God. He used all the resources that were available to him. He wanted to subdue the sins of the flesh. He wanted to put his body through the sternest of rigors in order that he could do what God was calling him to do. No sacrifice was too great. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to win the favor of God. He prayed for hours and hours on end. But in spite of all of his efforts and in spite of all his labors and in spite of all his attempts to isolate himself from the sins of the world, nothing seemed to help. And his conscience continued to bother him over and over again. One day, one of his superiors at the monastery suggested that he begin a study of the Bible. And reluctantly, Martin Luther agreed. He began with the book of Psalms. And then he moved on to the New Testament and began a study of the book of Romans. And, and then he went on to the study of Galatians. And at first, it was a very challenging uh, ordeal for him, but no brilliant insight or no brilliant observation seemed to captivate his heart and his mind. He kept working, but the Holy Spirit was also working. And slowly but surely, Luther began to see a new picture of who God is. God was not only just and righteous, but God was also loving and merciful and gracious. And on the basis of the clear teachings of the Bible, Martin Luther finally realized on the basis of his study of Romans and Galatians that God was willing to accept him not on the basis of anything that he had done, not on the basis of all of his good works and all of his efforts to gain favor with God, but God was willing to accept him on the basis of what Jesus Christ had done for him through his perfect life and atoning death and glorious resurrection. And as he put his hope and his trust in Jesus Christ, he had the confidence and assurance that Jesus' righteousness would be given to him. And God would look upon him just as if he had never sinned because the righteousness of Jesus was now his. And he wrote, day and night I pondered until I saw that God justifies his people not through their own good works, but through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And then he went on to confess, I felt reborn. And it was as if I had gone through the very doors of paradise itself. Now for Luther, the whole Bible began to take on new meaning and significance and spoke to him with relevance and addressed the very heart of his needs. And the more familiar you and I become with the Bible, the more we will come to say that, see that God is not impressed with our performance. No matter how hard we try to impress God, that old idea of trying to impress God is still around these days. It has crept into the Christian faith too. And you can see evidence of it in the way in which we practice the Christian faith in our own generation as well. For centuries, we have seen forms of Christianity that set up the whole idea of salvation 
as a bargain that people make with God. God does this, and we do that. And if you put those two things together, what we do and what God does, then somehow or other, it's going to work out all right. But no matter how you cut it, though, it's only an attempt to go back to that old game of trying to impress God all over again. Well, as I said, if you are sometimes upset when some of your friends are not impressed with the things that you do or when your children aren't all that terribly impressed with what you have to say, then you really are going to be upset when you stand before Almighty God on the day of judgment and discover that he isn't all that impressed with what you have done either. The prophet Isaiah pricks the balloon of our pride when he says, all of our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And the Bible again and again underscores the fact that no matter how good a person is in this life, when he compares himself to the triune God who is perfectly holy, he always comes up with age on his face. Another man who discovered the futility of trying to earn his way into heaven, who tried to impress God by his life and by his virtues and by the works of the law, was the Apostle Paul. He gives his testimony to us in the chapter that we read from Philippians chapter 3. As a young man, Paul had been thoroughly indoctrinated into the way of life and thought of the Pharisees. He went to Jerusalem to study under the scholarship of a great teacher named Gamaliel, one of the great leaders of the Pharisees in that day. And he learned that there were all sorts of intricacies of the law, hundreds of ways that he could use to impress God. And he thought he was on the road to success. He was on the dean's list as far as he was concerned. He had made accomplishments far beyond that of many others of his generation. He fought zealously for the great way of salvation that he was learning through his study with the Pharisees. While in Jerusalem, he learned of a new leader that had emerged among the people of God. His name was Jesus. And Paul followed his career with some interest because he was certainly creating attention in that day. Eventually, the hatred of the Pharisees began to emerge against Jesus because of some of the things he said and did. Paul became furious with Jesus because of his neglect to keep the law the way he thought the law ought to be observed, because Jesus sometimes violated the Sabbath day and did things that he didn't think were appropriate on the Sabbath day. Paul was incensed by what he saw Jesus teaching and doing. And so he was relieved when Jesus was crucified and put to death. But when Jesus' followers started to say, that the only way a man could find salvation and forgiveness is through believing in the crucified Jesus, who they said had risen again on the third day. Paul became absolutely furious. He could not contain his rage any longer. And so he began his work as the great persecutor of the early church. And you remember the rest of the story, how the risen and exalted Lord met the great persecutor of the church 
Acts 9 gives us the details of that story, how Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there when that bright light shone down from heaven and the risen Lord Jesus Christ interrupted his journey and appeared to him and, and Paul met the risen Christ on the Damascus road. And his life was radically and fundamentally changed and the rest is history. The greatest persecutor of the Christian church became the great missionary in the early church. And the heart of his message that he brought to the world of that day was that the only way anyone can ever be saved is not through performing the works of the law and doing what all those details of the laws that the Pharisees prided themselves were so important. The only way a person could be saved is through faith in Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection. Paul came to believe that it is not through the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ that salvation can become ours. And that message lies at the, great, at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, which Martin Luther began. It's foolish for us to try to impress God with all of our own performances, because there is only one person who has ever impressed God, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, who through his perfect life and atoning death has done what you and I could never do, he fulfilled the law of God completely, and he paid the price on Calvary's cross to atone for our sins so that we could have redemption and life everlasting. Jesus is the only one who impresses God, and the only people who can be saved are those who say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If you want to see what went on in the apostle's mind, the third chapter of Philippians will let you share his thoughts. Here he describes his past and the careful way he applied himself to the big job of impressing God. This is what he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness under the law, faultless. Now I know that language may seem a bit obscure to us, but what Paul was saying is that when it came to keeping the law of God, when it came to following all the rules and regulations, Paul had a track record that nobody could beat. When it comes to impressing God, Paul was in the first of the line as far as doing what he thought was necessary. He had won the marathon as far as, as he was concerned. If anybody had a chance with God, certainly he knew that he did. And he knew that when it came to heaven, he was in like a flint. And he was proud of it. But all of that changed on that day when this young persecutor of the Christian church saw the full meaning of Jesus in that bright light that shone down upon him at noonday. And once he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ and realized that Jesus was indeed the son of the living God, 
the stunning truth that God's way of salvation was only to be found in Jesus hit him like a 10-ton truck. And all of the plans that he had been making to impress God collapsed when he suddenly saw that God was impressed with only one thing, the cross on which his son died. For Paul, a man who was hung on a cross was the least thing he thought would be impressive to God because the Bible said in the Old Testament that a man who is hung on a cross is cursed by God. But eventually, the whole truth of what the Bible revealed to him began to sink through his stubborn soul and killed all of his natural instincts to try to put together a plan in which he could put God in debt to him. And after the initial shock of finding out that the crucified Jesus was indeed God's only begotten son wore off, Paul gradually saw that Jesus Christ had become a million times more cursed than he had ever thought because God had taken the sin of the whole human race and placed it upon Jesus so that Jesus could suffer and die in our place so that he could bear the anguish and torment of hell for us, so that we through faith in him might have the assurance of sins forgiven and life everlasting. And when this fiery persecutor of Jesus' followers finally saw the full wonder of God's love and grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ, everything that he had ever done in order to make an impression upon God turned into raw sewage. That's what he says in Philippians 3, verse 8. Do you understand what the Bible is saying here? If you don't, take a week off and devote your time to looking at this until you figure it out. The Bible is saying that there is only one way that you can impress God. And you can't possibly do it by your own performance. You cannot make a payment that's going to impress God you can't make an payment that is going to be acceptable because if you try to do it that way, it's like getting that telephone call from the bank that tells you that your checking account is overdrawn. If you try to pay God with a check that you write on your own merits, you're going to discover that you don't have enough in your account to back it up. Only the righteousness of Jesus Christ is adequate to satisfy the sovereign, holy God before you and I will one day have to give an account. And that righteousness becomes the possession of those who put their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And that's the glad message of Philippians 3. We all know that it, what it means uh, to try to make an impression on other people and fail. But Paul realized that Jesus was willing to take our place in order that we might experience the fullness of his love. Philippians 3 tells us how Paul looked back on his brilliant track record and declared, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I considered them to be garbage, that I may be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own based upon law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is based on faith. This is the glad message of Philippians 3. We cannot impress God on our own because our performance is always imperfect and inadequate and mixed with sin and errors. The only way we can make an impression upon God is by claiming what Jesus has done on our behalf. And unless we come before God and say to him on that day of judgment, I have nothing to bring. My performance is inadequate and imperfect. But, oh God, I have this friend of mine, and you know him. Because he is your son, and he is my savior. And he entered into this world, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on Calvary's cross to atone for my sins, and he rose again on Easter morning to give me that victory. And so I put my trust in him. Hallelujah. And so, God, I come here in his name, and I'm presenting before you not my own works, not my own righteousness, not my own performance, but I'm presenting you the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. And I'm claiming his righteousness as my own because as I put my faith and trust in him, he promises to give me his righteousness, and I'm, I'm putting his righteous deeds around me and claiming them as my own because I belong to him. I am nothing, but he is everything. I am unrighteous, but he is righteous, and he is giving me his righteousness, and I can be clothed in the righteousness that he offers to me as I put my hope and trust in him. And the Bible's message is that people who try to hide behind Christ and who claim his righteousness as their own will make an impression upon God that is so overwhelming that he will save them for all eternity. That's the glorious hope of the gospel, that we are sinners, but Jesus is not. We are corrupt, but Jesus is not. And if we commit our lives to him and put our trust in him and receive him as our savior, if we repent of our sins and believe in him alone, we will be saved for this life and for eternity. And the one who believes that can say, my faith has found a hiding place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me, shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Yes, it is enough that Jesus died. And after the cross, we can know for a certainty that everything else pales into insignificance in the brilliant light of Calvary. 
Every plea, every accomplishment, every thought, every concept is forgotten when suddenly a person comes to see the glory of God's salvation plan revealed when God sent his one and only son into this world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's not fool ourselves. We are still trying to impress God. That's the big game, finally, for all of us. Some of us are fine Christians, blue chip all the way. God is not impressed. And we are proud of our faith, of our traditions, of our heritage. God is not impressed. In our lives, some of us are so respectable, we are stuffy. And we think God must like us very much. But God is not impressed. And some of us are proud of the way we are overthrowing all the hypocrisies we see around us in our day. But God is not impressed. And some of us have a track record of good works that will extend all the way from here to the moon. But God is not impressed. When it comes to salvation from hell, God is impressed with only one thing, the precious blood of his son shed on Calvary's cross. So if you are frustrated sometimes when you try to impress other people and they are not impressed at all, Think of what it's going to be like on the day of judgment when you are fighting for your life and you are standing there before God. The only people that God will accept on that great day of judgment are those who have repented of their sins, put their trust in Jesus, and are washed clean from their guilt and corruption through the sacrifice that he offered for us on Calvary's cross. To avoid embarrassment on the day of judgment, there's one thing that you need to do right now, and that is to believe and trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. It must look almost funny, Lord, to see people like us trying to impress God when our lives have been so bent out of shape by sin that everything that we do is flawed and marred. And especially now, since Jesus died to reveal the fullness of his love and grace, what we try to do to earn our way into glory must look pitifully insignificant. Forgive us for trying to work out a deal that would help us to pay the price of eternal life. Overpower us with grace so that we will see how inadequate we are and how great Jesus is. Help us to become refugees who flee their own danger-filled security and find peace and safety at Calvary's cross where Jesus died. 
We are so grateful for Jesus' love revealed at the cross. We confess that through his death, he earned the right to save all those who believe and trust in him. Through your saving power, the power of your Holy Spirit, give that saving faith to each of us and to millions of people today. In the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, we pray.